Welcome to Room for Growth. A Willow Tree podcast about growth marketing hosted by Billy Lowen and me, Billy Fisher. Whether you're an industry expert or just getting started, there's plenty of room to grow. Share this episode with your favorite coworker, follow us wherever you enjoy podcasts, and reach out if you'd like to join the show. You ready, Billy? I'm ready, Billy. Let's go. Let's f***ing grow. Billy, today we're talking to David Lieberman, who I definitely, um, you know, in our conversation with him, he is a smart guy who I think the thing that we loved most about the podcast is how he starts to break down Web3. If anybody in the the marketing space, you're trying to figure this out. Um, so we're excited to have David Lieberman today on the podcast. He also has built a lot of really cool experiences for children and for just general users that have achieved some pretty impressive milestones. As I was listening to him, Billy, on your phone, what app are you using? Not Instagram, not the popular ones, but what's the like the kind of under the radar app that's on your phone that you might feel uncomfortable sharing with us? What do you got? Oh, I thought you and I were vibing so hard because I'm so excited to talk about Spotify and Taylor Swift's new albums and how she's marketing them and how brilliant that is. I think it goes... That was your weekend? That was a bit my weekend. I was sick this weekend, so I was mostly laying on the couch watching scary movies or listening to Midnight's. But I was going to say, I think I listen to Spotify constantly because it's both a desktop app on my computer, it's on my phone, it's kind of ubiquitous, it's everywhere, it's constantly in my house. I would guess that gets the most hours. But what were you thinking of? And when I think of like embarrassing, I don't I don't even know if I want to admit. Not embarrassing, but I was like, like David's launched the Frozen Karaoke app. Oh, yeah. And back in the day, you know, before anybody was using uh, Triller or, or Musical.ly, people are like, you know, it's a thing you probably use for fun. I think the most embarrassing thing that I've recently done is I downloaded my daughter and I downloaded the SimCity app. And, uh, which is like something I did. I played that like in like 1992 <laughs> and like the desktop version. Oh my gosh. Yes. But like on my phone, the iPhone version. So like, as David was talking, I was thinking about like what makes an app sticky and somehow they got me for like a, a one month period. I've kind of phased out of it where I was logging into that stupid thing every day and building my city as a grown 40 year old man. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, which is so good. And so it just, I was thinking they do a great job at like, hey, there's going to be a natural disaster in your city that you spend so much time on. You better come in and clean it up. And so surely enough, I would click that push notification. Totally. So yeah, you have anything like that? I've been using the Impulse app. So the Impulse app is there's a paid version and a free version. And it's all different kinds of like brain games is how it's marketed. So you can do things almost like a Wordle where you can just play in that or you can do sort of these like games where you have to trace a shape without crossing over any other lines or you have to make patterns or whatever. I've been using that infrequently, but they do have a pretty good push strategy. They send like two to three pushes a day reminding me to take a break and do some brain games. It's like a really simple push strategy, but it hasn't made me mad yet, which is pretty rare for a brand that they would send something not personalized. And I'm still like, oh yeah, I should use that app. Yeah, And I just like to use it in kind of those... That's a much more mature version of than me. (laughs) <laughs> than my SimCity example. <laughs> SimCity or like roller coaster tycoon. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it is just like playing a game, but I feel like it's a little healthier than just like mindlessly scrolling Instagram. So I've been doing that. Oh, I have to tell you, I have two obsessions right now. They're both very girly. So we're going to go back to Taylor Swift. I promise you, we have to talk about it. 
Yeah, let's do it. For anyone who's not following, one thing that I'm obsessing over always, because it's always so funny, but email season is picking up. Inboxes are starting to get more and more emails. It's starting to be the release of holiday items. I just shout out to Reformation. Reformation is predominantly a female clothing and like sort of beauty brand e-commerce experience shopping. Subject lines and pre-header text is so funny. Their email content is hilarious. They have things like they'll show, you know, tiles of their clothes and they'll say things like, if he's going to serenade you at Coachella, Harry Styles needs to be able to find you in a crowd. (laughs) Ooh, nice. Like that is funny. Their subject lines are almost always in like all caps. They're just absolutely screaming at you. They'll say things like, ignore your therapist. Think about the past and vintage inspired things. Like they just have these really quippy, funny content. Uh, pieces that are really close to their audience and like who they're marketing to and is fun. How'd you come across them? Instagram ad? Well, no, Reformation has been around for a long time. Yeah, their Instagram is great. They use influencers pretty heavily for their clothing. Um, They're very famous for their dresses and for sustainability and how they're shipped. But man, their email and the content of it is just absolutely top-notch. So I've been loving that. Okay, talk to me about Taylor Swift. You obviously listened to the album this weekend, Billy. What you thinking? I listened to the album. I'm much more of a 1989 Taylor Swift guy. Okay. And, you know, I could listen to Welcome to New York on repeat. So I just was struggling, but I'll give it another go. You know, that first time you listen to a new album and sometimes it doesn't stick and you just got to like give it two or three more times. So I'm not against it. You are like a Swifty though, a little bit. I like Taylor Swift probably a lot more than the average 40-year-old male. I would think I kind of over-index uh, <laughs> towards Taylor Swift. Yeah, for sure. Okay. I love that for you. I think I'm almost <laughs> like not a Swifty. Like I have a lot of respect for Taylor Swift and her music and her business acumen, I think is of course great. I don't know that I'm a huge fan. I would say if anything, this album reminds me of like Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel. Like it is the swiftiest of the Taylor Swift albums I've ever heard. It just sounds like quintessential Taylor. Like every song I listened to sounded like another song. But how she released this album is what I've been obsessed with. So she released Midnight's. She teased it. And then she released Midnight's, which I think is 12 songs or 13. And then she released 3AM version, which has an additional four songs. And then she released an album version that has a bonus song you can only get if you pay for the album. Oh, cool. And I think that is brilliant. Like how that's going to drive streams, drive downloads, drive how people interact with her music and listen to it. When we think about like stickiness in the music industry, Taylor Swift is so brilliant at how she gets people to become fully obsessed and have her songs stuck in their head, whether or not they want to. I was just reflecting on how interesting it is that the whole world kind of stops to like listen to a Taylor Swift album. Yeah. Whether you like her or don't like her, everybody knows it's here. Definitely saw a lot of content, which drove me to say, oh, I should, I'm just going to listen to this and see what it's all about because I'm seeing every other friend of mine on Instagram posting about it. So got to be with it. So yeah, it definitely captures people on Spotify. You talked about that. They continue like the video content that they're incorporating when you're just casually listening on Spotify. Like everything just continues to make it. We've used that word sticky today a couple of times. They launched this new application within the app where you can like create a playlist based on what you're wearing that day, like your vibe. Uh, I don't know if you've played around with this. You're like today I'm wearing like blue and I'm feeling sad um, or whatever. And it starts, it creates a playlist based on your past music preferences. So pretty cool. 
It's totally true. Yeah. The collaborative nature, I think of Spotify too, is going to continue to grow in popularity. I don't know about you, but I think stalking people on their social media is out. Find them on Spotify and just dig through their playlist a little bit, create a collaborative playlist, like make one together. That is what tells you a lot about people. I think it's like so much more interesting. Who they are. No kidding. Yeah. And to quote an internet meme... Uh, Spotify wrapped is coming. So there's still time to binge listen to music. So you are not embarrassed when your Spotify wrapped <laughs> comes out. Yeah, I've actually was just thinking about that. Like, oh no, this song that I've listened to a hundred times <laughs> in the past month is going to show up and everybody will know. <laughs> yeah. They're going to weaponize it. The best form of personalization is when they weaponize your own data against you. Like the things you've done on the internet that are slightly cringe. Everyone will know. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that, we have a guest who not only just a serial entrepreneur, somebody who constantly has big ideas, brings them to market and makes them successful, which I find super inspiring. But a lot of what we're going to talk about is music and the music industry and some of the experiences that have led to like the advent of the TikToks of the world and how we consume media, particularly around sort of sound bites and how that changes how we experience the world when it's happening in these sort of like repeated loops and how we can interact in it ourselves. So without further ado, excited to get to our guest, David Lieberman. All right, everybody, we are super excited to get to our guest interview today. Our guest today is David Lieberman. He and his cousin, Sammy Rubin, created the Triller app, which for folks who don't recall that experience, it was a viral app, had over 250 million downloads, hit number one overall in the app store in about 50 countries, um, and then was acquired by Proxima Media in 2019. And then since that time, David and his cousin have also developed the chart-topping Disney karaoke Frozen, which was the highest grossing iPad app in the music app in music, and then in 100 plus countries, and the number one highest grossing iPhone app in music in 35 plus countries. And then has also worked on the acclaimed Miblio Kids Music Platform, which was featured in the Wall Street Journal and Mashable. Um, So David is on to his next project, which we're excited to learn more about today. David is about to launch Console, which is a solution for Web3 communities as they build, grow, and thrive. And the Console app is a chat platform designed specifically for decentralized organizations. So think Web3 Discord. We're going to untangle some of this for anyone who's already in over their tech heads for a Wednesday morning or whenever you're listening. Some fun facts, though. David owns the Lorca, which is a Catskills retreat, and Adirondacks Mid-Century Motel. And he's also a cyclist, a Yale grad, and he works with Habitat for Humanity. So, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. David, what an intro. Like, all I am thinking about is, do you know every single song from Frozen? If you're building, I'm sure if you're building an app, a karaoke app for Frozen, you end up memorizing every single lyric. Is this true? This is true. All too well. (laughs) Yeah. Sneaky life skill. Well, so glad to have you. And Thanks for joining us on Room for Growth. How on earth did you get started in uh, mobile app development? Okay, how did I get started in app development? I was a couple years out of college. I was a little bit tired of working in management consulting. And my cousin Sammy called me on one of our routine catch-ups. We were kind of getting to know each other. We grew up together, but he was like a couple years older. So uh, we were still, you know, now I was out of college, we were living in the city together, kind of building a cousinly relationship. And he was telling me about an idea for a new format of not so much 
music album and not so much storybook, but some kind of new multimodal experience for kids. And I remember I was biking, just had come over the Manhattan Bridge, come back to Park Slope, and Sammy was describing this kind of general idea to me, and I was kind of into it. So uh, I guess fast-forwarding a little bit, we kind of penciled some ideas down and, you know, traded some brainstorming. And that was our first app, Miblio. So it started with an idea and took it from there. Yeah. So David, let's get into the marketing side of app building because you're not only good at building apps. I mean, obviously you're successful. They both Miblio and then also the Disney Frozen Karaoke app were huge in the app store. How did you not just create a great product. So Miblio has been described as sort of akin to GarageBand for toddlers. And it hit top of the app store charts within the first few weeks of launching. Um, And then your second app, the Disney Frozen Karaoke app, was that number one highest grossing app in the category on the app store in over 100 countries on iPad and 30 on iPhone. We know a thing or two about launching an app into the app store. And it is not easy to drive that number one position. You have to be really thoughtful about your go-to-market and some of the technical launch of the app as well, and then how you market it. What are your marketing skills? How were you successful at this? I think we got a little lucky at a couple points and we did a couple things well. One thing that Sammy and I always tried to remind ourselves was how important a good quality product was. So before any traditional or growth marketing, we would always be obsessed with product and iterating to get to exactly that experience that he and I loved and we thought kids would love. After that, with Miblio, it was a little bit more traditional marketing than growth marketing, I would say. We concentrated more on PR and some partnerships that I think really drove awareness around the app. Those in turn, I think, helped us turn some heads at Apple who wound up featuring Miblio. And that was awesome for acquisition. So a lot of our marketing was focused on acquisition and our product development was really focused on retention. Are you guys musicians? We've kind of, each of the, uh, the apps, the successful apps that Billy was talking about kind of in this music category, are you guys musicians or just, you know, app builders? Like, how did you guys get this inspiration around music? Yes, Sammy and I are both musicians. Sammy is more of a trained uh, jazz musician, took uh, most of his, you know, college courses at Eastman. I'm a bluegrass untrained musician. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So that's where some of those skills come in. I'm sure that came into handy as you guys were building some of the experiences. Totally. And I know you said that you were more focused, especially on acquisition of users, of course, but then sort of PR partnerships to get Spotlight on the app that you really needed in the app store to help drive those downloads as well. But I am curious if in those first builds, you were doing some growth marketing just in that you were trying to understand the behaviors of your user base, which in this case is children, which I think is especially interesting to understand how are children as users really different than adults? Do they have different expectations for UX patterns or do they consume really differently? Like, What did you learn about the difference between how children use technology 
versus what you might expect with adults? I have to be honest with you. Um, I think for a variety of reasons. One, this was our first app and I didn't know anything about mixed panel or amplitude or localytics or any of this stuff. <laughs> Two, this was a young kid's app and there's COPA and other laws uh, to abide by with tracking data. We just didn't really, to be honest, we didn't really know of all of the product and marketing analytics that can be so helpful in app development and growth. I don't have a good answer for you. I think we were really largely building from intuition and our empathy towards little kids. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we would watch some kids play with the app, but that was about it. I mean, I think, I guess one, I don't know if I had to give you something here. One of the principles underlying Miblio was that kids didn't have to be like a, a musical app or an entertainment app or an educational app, even for a kid, it doesn't have to be so prescriptive that kids are able to improvise. And with a little bit of what we came to kind of call like structured creativity, you can have, say, a musical app for kids that's not totally cacophonous, you know, that's like nice for kids to explore music with and for parents to listen to. Awesome. How did the the relation, you know, the, the getting featured in Apple, the iOS store is a big deal. Did that happen? You mentioned you got lucky. Was that one of those lucky uh, areas or uh, is there something that you did to, to kind of de develop a relationship with Apple? No, we were super green. We didn't even know that that was a thing. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I like love that. As you're talking, I'm just reflecting on how fast apps have really matured from this new technology into something that is so ubiquitous and so adopted by society that there's no doubt that apps are going to continue to dominate how we experience the internet and how we experience life on our phones into the future. But it is crazy how in just 15 years, it's gone from the wild west of what can be created into now total norms where you're saying, you know, even a few years ago, the notion that you would release an app and not be tracking the analytics on it, or you'd be developing out of research that felt more intuitive rather than, you know, based in sort of metrics of how people are interacting with each feature is pretty wild to me. It's just been such a fast learning curve for all of society and for how we've developed norms and standards around like how apps are developed. And then I love your point that you're like, nope, App Store was just a surprise and a lucky break and it happened. Talk to us about that day. Like, when did you find out you were going to be featured in the App Store? What did it feel like to understand that was going to happen? And then I'm sure that the growth must have been precipitous. Like, what were you doing in those days? I mean, we didn't even know that that was going to happen. We just woke up and one day we noticed that we had 70,000 downloads that day. And we were like, something's going on. Um, and yeah, we went to the App Store and just saw a big banner for Miblio. And it was, you know, with our kind of very indie Brooklyn, you know, illustrator vibe, and uh, which was really fun to see. That's awesome. That's so awesome. The third app that you launched, Triller, started as a music video maker and became a popular social media app. It hit number one also on the App Store in over 50 countries, which is really impressive. That's amazing. And has been downloaded over 300 million times. I mean, this has become almost like a, a whole in industry. When you talk about Triller, this is like a commonly accepted today type of application. But it uh, sounds like when you guys were launching it, you were kind of early on in the idea of this kind of making, making videos. So definitely need to talk about this. Can you tell us how you came to this idea? Yeah. 
again, Sammy's idea, not mine. Um, I'll tell you, you know, kind of what was happening. We had just done Disney Frozen karaoke and we were thinking about ways to, you know, what to do next, basically uh, ways to kind of leverage that video karaoke experience in the Frozen karaoke app. Kids can overdub their vocal performances to actual footage from the movie. So it's kind of fun. You wind up seeing like tens of thousands or more video. The videos look the same, but you hear, you know, karaoke performance. Um, so that might get a little tiresome, especially for the app developers. So we were thinking, you know, how do we make this a little more interesting? And uh, we wound up an intermediate step, if you're interested in kind of some of the details here, we wound up talking to a bunch of medium to major record, medium-sized to large record labels. And we were thinking, we've struck upon like a, a new format here. So when, you know, at the time, Pharrell Williams was coming out with like a new single, you know, there would be the single on iTunes and there would be the music video and then there would be the whatever you call it. Just the standard playbook. Right. In this case, like the interactive Pharrell video karaoke app or something. And everyone was pretty psyched about this. We almost wound up building that product with Warner and or Sony and or Universal Music Group. And we wound up abandoning that proactively ourselves because Sammy and I, actually Sammy really was calling attention to how tiresome at, you know, watching all of those videos would be. So basically we kind of ditched that product because we ourselves just weren't excited about it, although we kind of had already sold it to, you know, some big partners, but uh, we weren't into it, actually. It was in kind of ideating around what to do with video karaoke that Sammy thought, oh, why don't we invert the audio and the video? So rather than layering audio on top of video, maybe let's layer video on top of a master audio track which is basically how music videos are made. So that was where the idea for Triller came. Love it. David, when history textbooks catch up to technology and start trying to make sense of especially the advent of social media, how do you think they'll talk about Triller in relation to TikTok? It strikes me that you were sort of one step away from the big idea of TikTok in a sense, or sort of an early player to what is now such a huge and overwhelmingly present experience. How do you make sense of that? Well, I'm curious if the history books will get to Musical.ly. I mean, do you guys remember Musical.ly or no? Yeah, only from my children. Uh, that was kind of, that was pre-TikTok. Yeah, my kids introduced me to that. Yeah, yeah. Musical.ly was the precursor to TikTok before it was bought by ByteDance, the Chinese company. And can you help me, Triller and Musical.ly, were those in the same time frame? Yeah, yeah. Musically and Triller launched at almost about the same time. Musically was very focused on a younger demographic, honestly, like nine to 11 year old. My children at the time. Yeah. Mostly girls, to be honest, um, was kind of like the Musically community. Triller was a little bit older. Triller was like maybe more of that Snapchat, like high school age, skewed a little bit more hip hop as far as like genre. So, while we were both in the short form video space and 
really used music as like a go-to-market strategy. It was really very different communities. We also were trying to democratize how music videos could be made on a phone. So we invented that auto edit that is kind of the magic of Triller, which we could talk about. So, you know, those are a couple ways in which like, you know, we viewed ourselves as different products, different, different communities. Interesting. Tell us more about, you said the magic behind Triller was the, the, the auto edit. Auto edit. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So we wanted to just make it really easy to make a music video that looked like, you know, a real MTV video from the 90s or maybe something more contemporary. The hard thing about video, music video, or just like video on a phone in general, unlike with photo, where the answer was simply like a filter, that's what Instagram realized. With video, it's really the edit that is so challenging. So we wanted to be able to make that as easy as possible. The trailer experience is very much like how a music video crew might approach making a music video where you shoot one take the park and then you shoot another take over the exact same song start to finish on the yacht or something or a third take, you know, out by the fountain and you go from start to finish over the song. And then you would send those various uh, clips to an editing house to decide when to go to take one, when to go to take two, back to take one. You following me? We just made that one tap instantaneous on the device. Like we try to simulate the decisions that a human editor would make in cutting that footage together. Wow. How long did it take you guys to build Triller from kind of idea conception to launch in the app store from idea to launch was about six months give or take wow yeah it's impressive that's so fast yeah yeah and as you're talking i'm thinking about musically and tiktok and triller and all the and just kind of all these app experiences and it's our expertise is typically in building apps for brands that are typically very product driven and commerce driven. But as you're talking, I'm thinking like there's some core attributes, like people want to either express themselves artistically, laugh, or just have fun. And maybe sometimes all three of those things happen at the same time. And it seems like as I've consumed all these videos, I'm generalizing pretty heavily, but those are like the three areas where you guys focused more on the artistic creation part, um, the kind of the expression of art. Whereas like, it seems like TikTok today is mostly, I don't know, there's so much on there. Maybe it's hard to put it in one category, but a lot of funny uh, would be at least what I see uh, most often. It sounds like you guys were more in that expressive area. What do you think? Yeah. You know, we, for a long time, kept the OG like landscape video. We use like a, uh, gritty black and white, you know, filter that kids could use. Um, or uh, we really were, were, I think we were pretty thoughtful in kind of like the filters that we were giving users. And that was always a big thing that people talked about when we asked them what they love most about Triller. We were interested in the quality of the videos that our users could make. I do think that was a bit of a difference in that the history books may, may talk. 
And you spared us all from listening to people uh, sing bad karaoke to Pharrell's Happy. Uh, it's a lot more fun to see people dance to that song than to hear them sing it, I would think. So <laughs> your intuition sounds like it was probably right. Again, that was that was Sammy's idea. And then one more question on this front. So Triller went from being sort of music video creation app to a social media platform. How did you use growth tactics to increase the number of users, e.g. like, Triller famous? Yeah. Well, I mean, Triller was part of a uh, a new generation of really creator-focused apps that benefit from built-in, you know, viral word of mouth marketing. We made the decision to initially only enable Triller videos to exist outside of the app. There were no videos to watch in Triller. It was simply the tool to make the videos, most of which would wind up living on Instagram with a little beautiful Triller watermark. So in that way, we built the flywheel into the app. And once we kind of got the party started, then we added the social network and the ability to watch videos and make it like a destination. But we didn't want to drop people into an empty room. And we wanted the experience really to focus on creating something that was really meaningful and valuable to them. Uh, It was only later when we built kind of like a Triller tribe that dabbled in, we started experimenting in building a social network within the app we wound up actually, after doing that massive product transition to a social network, we wound up ripping out the social network a while after, going back and doubling down the tool, the utility, and then fast forwarding again, the, you know, the social network came back. So, so interesting. So now you're building console, which is sort of like Discord for Web3. But let's pretend for a moment that you have never heard of Discord. You don't know what Web3 is. Like, let's start there and then talk to us about what console is. So let's make sure we're keeping everybody with us. I think on this podcast, we try to make sure we do not use tech jargon too frequently without at least stopping and being like, all right, let's break our tech bubble for a minute and make sure everybody's kind of coming with us. So talk to us about console. What does it do? And what are you most excited about? I'll tell you about console. I'll tell you about, you know, you asked about Discord and Web3. So Discord is a chat app, much like Slack. A lot of initially tech companies and now all companies use Slack uh, to chat. A lot of people around the world, especially in the last couple of years, instead of using Slack, uh, particularly for like kind of hobby projects, um, chat in Discord. So kind of think of Discord as kind of similar to Slack, except it's got a black background. And it is where a lot of chat is going down, uh, particularly initially it was uh, where gamers would chat. And increasingly the last couple of years, it is where a lot of Web3 projects are chatting. So Web3 is a vibe. (laughs) (laughs) It is an extension of the internet, quite simply. And I heard someone describe it as like merely an extension of the internet. It is a new movement that 
depending on who you talk to, is changing the way the internet is architected. A couple of the principles of Web3 are decentralization. So rather than a couple of big tech companies owning your data, you own your own data. I see you're, you're smiling, Billy L. Is this something you've been thinking about? Yeah, keep going. <laughs> so owning your own data is a big thing. So right now, like, think about just your login, you know, your password to Facebook or Instagram. Like so often, you know, you forget your password. You need to, you know, contact someone at Facebook to get your password again. Facebook ha- or Instagram or any any web two application, you know, has a database of all of your information. A web three application would not have such a database as console, which I'll tell you about in a second. Like we don't have, you know, your login data, you control, you know, your identity, you control your data and you can imagine kind of taking this a step further. And this is where it's very interesting and still very nascent if you decide you don't want for whatever reason be on instagram anymore on twitter anymore on facebook anymore but you've spent so much time like building a brand there and building a following like you should be able to take not just your handle your name like but all of your followers let's say over to another identical like a you know a competitor maybe a upstart in Brooklyn who came out with, you know, a cleaner, you know, Facebook or Instagram. So you should be able to take you and your family and followers over to another application. Today, that's not possible uh, in a Web3 world that would be. Wow. So now tell us more about console. (laughs) Now that you've given us the full kind of explanation. Yeah. So if you have used Discord in the last couple of years or you maybe heard conversations on Twitter about it. Um, There have been outcries for a better Discord. I mean, for the last couple years, every time I tell someone that that Chris and I, my co-founder, Chris Kastig, and I are building console, uh, which is a better Discord in summary, people are like, I've been waiting for this you know, a better Discord. So console is an improvement to Discord in a couple of different ways. Number one, as I said before, we don't own your your data. We don't own your identity. You do. You connect with a web wallet and it is more designed for the use cases that we see people trying to use Discord for, but kind of hitting walls. Um, we, we really designed it for those use cases in mind. Similar to at least my assumption is that Discord, you kind of mentioned this, Slack's kind of the business community. Uh, Discord is for, I don't know, maybe all other things. I've used Discord for a couple communities. It's all very, like like you said, hobbyist. Is that the same type of audience you guys will be targeting or is that to be determined? Well, I mean, really Discord was and in many ways still is great for gamers. It's not great for Web3 communities like projects that are trying to build kind of in that sort of new internet vision that I was describing. So console is really for them. It's really for Web3 communities, decentralized teams, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, uh, and other NFT communities. Um, That's really the focus of the early, you know, console product. 
Yeah. And if you haven't already, I think you should probably consider the Web3 as a vibe t-shirt because I think I think you've got something there. So I don't know. I encourage you to to make that quick Shopify story. I, could, I bet that would work. <laughs> Love it. David, you say you're getting close to launch. When is launch? What are some of the behaviors and the indicators that you're looking for to know whether you're successful at launch? Well, we have our first community using console at as we speak, we are doing a closed beta. So we're just gradually adding more communities and iterating on the product uh, with each new community, kind of a la Slack in the early days. So, you know, we don't have an immediate date to open up console publicly yet. We're not there yet, but um, go to console.xyz and drop your name and uh, we'll keep you posted. As far as metrics, we value uh, NPS score, like we were aiming for kind of a certain, you know, target NPS score. And we like, you know, like with an app like console where people are chatting every day, like there's a lot of anecdotal data there that is great to kind of, you know, immerse ourselves in the, in the chats and get a sense for the vibe. As far as Quantitative metrics, NPS score, daily active users, kind of the standard North Stars, but also we want people to be happy in there and we feel like we can get a sense for that from the conversations. So David, you obviously have a lot of experience building sticky applications and um, our listeners are typically folks that are charged with helping their company, you know, not just build an app, but continue to grow all the things that you have experience doing, you know, the stickiness, the daily active users, time spent within the application. So you obviously have a knack for uh, building sticky applications. Can you talk us through a little bit of that journey? Like once you built and launched the app, that ongoing kind of grooming of, uh, was it through features? Was it through customer feedback? How did you continue to optimize the experience uh, to make it more sticky? I don't know if we always succeeded at that, but we tried to remain as focused as we could on one or two North Star metrics, which might at many points not have been daily active users. Oftentimes going after a kind of DAU growth really, you know, causes you to sacrifice something or other that affects retention. So, you know, I think sometimes it's being a little bit more patient with daily active user growth and really focusing on like doubling and tripling down on what your users love. How do you know what your users love? I mean, the best way is to like be a power user of your product yourself and to be in like a WhatsApp group or a Telegram group, like with a lot of your kind of like evangelizing users and early users and like be talking to them all the time and occasionally do a survey and get a sense for what, you know, what people love most. Um, I think not necessarily always prioritizing growth was uh, something that we, you know, always tried to remind ourselves of. And then David, when a few big tech companies changed how tokenization and cookies could be tracked and how other companies could track their users based on sort of their footprint across web. It threw most of the private business world, it threw all of paid advertising into a total tizzy about how these changes would impact marketing, marketing spend, 
how companies could expect to draw users into their app and retain them and remarket to them. It was a huge cause of sort of uproar, but all in the name of user privacy. Web3 to me feels like a very similar shift. It's sort of a rejection of the notion that businesses has not been fundamentally trustworthy enough with user data. And so now many users are saying we can create this more private experience outside of an owned platform. I'm curious how Web3 could shift common technologies and how they're used today, things like customer data platforms or attribution tracking, etc. I'm curious how you think about what Web3 might do to marketing, to marketing technology, and to how private businesses think about reaching and retaining their users. Yeah, I I was thinking about this a little bit. I actually think that in many cases, it could enable more interesting opportunities to target that remain to be seen. Um, I think just fundamentally, if I today really enjoy the targeted Instagram ads, which I do, you know, I love when Instagram gets me and, and you know, shows me something that, that I totally don't know about and I'm in, into, you know, maybe I'm somewhere else on the privacy spectrum from my friend. My digital identity to me, you know, might be a little bit more comprehensive. The point is, it's up to me and it's up to you guys, you know, what you want to share. I might be like more of an open book on the internet and I will happily tell Willetree and your clients like what I'm about. So I think it's just about tapping into the new technologies that are in many ways more data comprehensive and interesting than, you know, trying to kind of like pry what you can uh, from various APIs. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Anybody who tells me they're like, I just hate advertising. I hate remarketing. Like really, like it makes life so much easier. If you are not a person who's searching for something that you want more information on and then immediately just leaving that search and waiting for answers to come to you, whether it's like you want a red rain jacket and you want the internet to decide, are you a person who typically purchases in this range or these types of brands or this quality? Like I think of that as a bit of a service and I understand the blurred lines between privacy but it is so interesting, this notion that it's not its not just like the nice experience of brands getting to know you or the internet getting to know you and feed you content. Like that's not the end of it. That's really not the point of Web3. The point of Web3 is to sort of change that experience so that you have more control over how that's functioned. Yeah, 100%. All right. This is my favorite closer question. Um, So David, thank you for being with us today. Great to hear from you. I wish we had another hour just to pick your brain about where technology is going generally and what you'd be investing in, in terms of experiences that you think will be table stakes in the next 10 years. But I have one question that I love to ask, which is, I want to invite you to talk positive trash about a brand that you truly love. Who do you love right now? Who are you loyal to? What do you like about them? What quality do they bring you? What makes you a loyal fan? My favorite brands are small brands, small businesses, like a restaurant that feels like it's got like an innovative take on a menu and like great branding. I'm going to talk genuine positive plug for honestly one of my brands, which we haven't really talked about, uh, which is the Lorca. And I attribute that to my amazing friend and co-founder, Julian of Lorca, who I think is branding you know, genius. Yeah. I guess I would encourage you guys to check out what we're doing there. It's very much like it's family, you know, it's like a family operation. It's a small business, uh, you know, 
growing pretty nicely, but I think we're trying to uh, cater to, you know, we're creating like a wilderness brand that has a diverse audience. Canoers who like have frequented the Adirondacks for years and then like Brooklyn kids who don't, haven't been in the Adirondacks before. So it's interesting to kind of like walk that line. Cool. Where can we find uh, the the Lorca? Thelorca.com. Lorca.com. Awesome. Cool. Well, I have to imagine that right now when we're talking in October, uh, those areas are at their prime. I have to, I have to think it's prime time season. Is that right? Totally. Yeah. Leaf peeping season. Oh yeah. Love it. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to check that out. And, and David, thanks for giving us your time. Best wishes on launching console. And uh, we look forward to see what you're up to here in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's been fun. By the way, um, if you're interested in console, go to console DAO, D-A-O on Twitter at console DAO. And if you're interested in connecting with me, I'm D Lieberman, L-E-I Lieberman, D Lieberman on Twitter. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much for that, David. We'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Have a good day, guys. 